Hey everyone. As you know, for several years, we've kept Yogaland sponsor and ad free. So every once in a while, we will take some time to let you know what we're offering. Right now, you can register for Jason's online sequencing course at learn.jasonyoga.com sequencing. If you go to that URL, you'll also get all of the details about that course. You can chat with us if you have questions, and we will be closing registration for that course at the end of November. Then next year, we've got a whole bunch of different offerings coming up. So Jason will be offering The Art of Teaching Beginners, He'll also be offering the ultimate guide to anatomy for yogis. And then we plan to offer, if there is enough interest, his 200-hour online training and also his 300-hour online training. I will start to post about the enrollment dates for these programs in January of 2023. The best way to keep up with us is to either follow us on Instagram. You can follow me at Andrea Ferretti. You can follow Jason at Jason underscore Crandall or to sign up for our newsletter, which you can go do at jasonyoga.com slash newsletter. I always tend to put the information in the newsletter first and I repeat it just so you know when, when things are on sale and when they're closing. And then Jason will post about them on Instagram. So I hope that's helpful. Enjoy this episode. Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti. Welcome to Yogaland. Hi there, Jason. Thanks for having me back. (laughs) You did such a great job last time. I thought, you know, I'd give you another shot. Give me one more shot. Exactly. A lot of times people feel like they only have one shot in this world. This is the second one for exactly. me. Exactly. And also, you know, it's Thanksgiving week. Ah. And I just wanted to show some gratitude for you. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I nice. actually do have a lot of... I know We're not going to get mushy. No, we, we don't get mushy. We could get like so mushy. It's off topic. And we're just not going to... It's like, yeah, you don't need your mom and dad to do that. Um. So how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well, except for I literally just bit my tongue. Oh, no. Physically. Uh (laughs) It really hurts. But I'm going to push through it. So if I sound a little slurred, I swear. You haven't been nipping on the the eggnog. I have not. No. No. No, you don't even drink. It's true. Um, So we are going to talk today about, and I've noticed this in the yoga classes I've been taking lately, you, you bring it up all the time. For decades. For decades. But I have it's been palpable in the yoga classes I've been able to take recently, which I'm so grateful for. But um, what's been palpable is this feeling that the students exude uh, that they want the class to be harder. Yes. Faster. Yes. Yeah. Those two things. Harder, faster. And, that, and the pressure that teachers feel both from... Um, the studio owners or or whomever their boss is, right? Whether they work at a fitness club or a um, bar studio or a studio itself, a yoga studio, the pressure that that's put upon them to have a really popular class and popular often equating to really hard so that the members or the students come up afterward and say like, oh, that was the hardest class yeah. I've ever taken. Oh, that hard was so exciting. Good. Yeah. Right? Because they have that like fire in their eyes. In my experience, it has always been this way yeah. since literally the 90s. Yeah. Uh, so maybe not always. Well, in my experience since the 90s, it has always been this way. Mm-hmm. So I think what's different for you, to be honest, is that you have just been taking public classes again yes. for the first time in a long time. Yes. And so you see that, and you know teachers, and you know me. Um, And so you are aware of this this very internalized feeling of pressure that as teachers we have to make everything always hard and harder. I think the first thing, like I have so many thoughts about this, okay? Um, And not all of them are negative. Like I don't, I want to share a lot of perspectives, but I want to start with two things. I don't think it's wrong or bad for students that are coming into a yoga room to want to work hard. Totally. I I don't, like, I completely understand that. Yes. Um, And I think we can unpack that a little bit. But the other other kind of place that I want to begin is just speaking as a yoga teacher and speaking as a teacher that has taught so many teachers. It's incredibly daunting 
to think about being in front of other people and boring them. Yeah. Like in almost any, you'd almost rather do anything other than feeling like you're boring students, (laughs) right? (laughs) And I'm going to tell you a basic psychology, which is for most students, if they don't feel physically engaged enough, they will fault the teacher. Like unconsciously, they'll be like, oh, this is kind of boring, right? So, so as a teacher, your fears about boring your students is not irrational. It really isn't. Um, like it's a, it's a perceived pressure, but it's also, it's a real pressure. Mm-hmm. And so there just tends to be, for those reasons, there tends to be a self-fulfilling cycle where as yoga teachers, we feel a lot of pressure to make class really hard, even when it's not completely appropriate, right? Even when we're working with students that have a lower experience level or a lower skill level. And I think that can be the really challenging, frustrating thing for teachers. Isn't making a class hard. It's when the teacher knows that that student base or many people in that room would be much better served with more basic and fundamental skills. Right, right, right. Right? And and yet we perceive or the reality is that the student wants to work more rather than learn more. Mm-hmm. And that's that's I think those are those are truths and those are frustrations and those are pressures. But I also think that there's there's some things that we can do about it other than just thinking to ourselves, oh this is like such an impossible situation. It is very difficult and it is very frustrating. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that there are things that we can do about it. Well, I think that um, just to chime in for a moment before we get to the actual things, I think one of the things to remember too is that part of the role of being a yoga teacher is not just teaching, obviously, not just teaching the poses, all of those things, but that this teaching the skill of learning how to learn is kind of part of it too, right? Like, does that make sense? Like teaching students that somehow, and I'm not, you know, somehow getting them to potentially do things a little differently than their impulse and their drive and their everyday instinct drives them to do is like, that's a skill in and of itself. I remember one time Kira Ryder and I were talking and she said, Kira is is a yoga teacher. um, I brought Kira up within the last two weeks in a conversation like this. Yeah. I I texted with Kira not long ago. Okay. such a nice, she's doing great, by the way. Good. Oh my gosh, I should have her on the show. Um, So one time she said, looked at me and very plainly said, you know, we just, we just aren't taught how to relax. And I know that this is very obvious, right? But it just felt like a profound statement. Like we're taught so many other things. We're taught how to work really hard. We're taught how to push ourselves. We're taught, but we're not taught. So in a sense, part of what yoga teachers have to grapple with is that this is a very normal human thing that people want to come in and get like the sort of internal neurochemical reaction that working hard does it is also a movement class. Yes. So like it's perfectly reasonable for them for the limited time that we have in our modern lives to want to move. And, you know, and often when you're newer, like you feel your body more when you're moving vigorously, like yeah. from a from a like interoception, proprioception standpoint, like that's just the reality. So all of these things are like very natural as you say that students are coming in and so it's kind of it seems like to me it's kind of a dance yes for the teacher yeah and i think a few more things just about the general uh the general conundrum that we have here Uh, and i think you know not all teachers realize this but most of us realize this or most of us at least at some point realize this that there is plenty of group exercise that happens in a class and yoga is a subject matter that transcends that group exercise. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. Obviously. Yeah. But so the challenge that we often have is we want to teach elements of the subject matter itself. But sometimes 
we don't feel that we can teach, especially the more subtle or the more technical or the fundamental elements of the subject matter itself, postural and beyond, because doing so takes time. And that time often um, interferes with the exercise demand. So we have these like educational and contextualization demands that are that are kind of butting up against the exercise demands, right? Right. And a lot of students, certainly myself, when I was a newer student, I didn't know, nor was I interested in the reality that yoga is a massive subject matter. I was there to use my body. I, I was there to move my body. This much more succinctly, and that's what I was trying to say. Right, right. Like people so, don't know, and that's okay. Yeah, they don't know, yeah. and it's not. It's not because they're fools. It's because no. they haven't been exposed to it. Right. right, and you know, it's and so as a yoga teacher, especially, especially teachers of a certain generation, especially teachers of a certain technical predilection. We have the desire to teach people nuance and detail and specificity and fundamentals and building blocks that accrue over time, not just exercise somebody for 60 minutes. And yet, we also have to exercise them for 60 minutes. And so these two things, these two things can kind of make us crazy. Yeah. You know, and I'll also say this is like, not every teacher gets stuck in this conundrum because some teachers choose and some people teachers love to be mostly group exercise teachers sure right and they're using uh yoga postural techniques to move and flow and every class is a new flow and every class is kind of a a strong one-off experience and that satisfies those students and that satisfies that teacher and then the other on the other side of the equation You have teachers that teach yin. You have teachers that teach restorative. You have teachers that teach things that are much more overtly um, without those exercise pressures. But so many of us are in the middle, right? So many of us are movement and vinyasa-based teachers that are a little bit more technical, and we want to get into the nuance and the the detail, and yet... We're also teaching a class where people are wanting to move a lot and wanting to learn and grow. And I want to just add, like, as a teacher, you want to help move them toward the state that is yoga, right? Right. And that's something that, of course, if they've never, if they're newer, that's not something they're familiar with or aware of as a possibility. Totally. And and I want to say one more quick thing before you follow up, which is I have said for years... Different people need different degrees of physicality to be focused and feel well. Yeah. And so this is also where we can't, and we are not, but we can't undermine this like, oh, fast yoga is not real yoga. Like, I don't love fast yoga, but for a lot of people in order to feel good and grounded and focused and to enter that state of yoga, they actually do have to move with a, an intensity and a coarse physical reality that engages them. And for other people, they're much more drawn to a more technical or a more slow form. And I think for teachers, the, the really challenging, frustrating thing is when we're somewhere stuck in the middle of all those things. Yeah. Well, I think another way of saying that is like the, the beautiful thing about yoga being heterogeneous, as you always say, is that it meets you where you are at different points in your life. I know a lot of really technical yoga teachers now who started off in a hot, fast class because that's what drew them in. And then they learned more and they changed and they, you know, things changed and they learned something else. So I agree with you. Like, I don't think this is about being judgy. No. Um, But it is about, like you said, coping with this conundrum. So here's a question I want to ask you again before you get into your how to cope how with to, this conundrum because there are ways how much of it is just accepting that you can't teach all of the things you want to teach the the state of yoga the deeper aspects in a 16 minute class 
As a teacher, uh-huh. a big part. Okay. So what I can tell everyone is I've learned almost nothing about the Yoga Sutra in yoga class. Right. I've learned almost nothing about the Upanishads in yoga class. I've learned almost nothing about the Bhagavad Gita in yoga class. Mm-hmm. I've heard things about those things, and I've been in very, you know, overtly spiritually driven teachers' classes for years. But where have I learned the majority of that content? Um, Not on the yoga mat. I've learned it in separate classes. I've learned it in separate courses. I've learned it through independent study. I've learned it so many of, I've maybe from a sensory experience, from a sensory perspective, experienced some of the deeper states of the yoga tradition from the yoga practice itself. But in terms of actually learning the deep nuances of the philosophy? Has that happened in a 60-minute flow class? No. It's a separate body of work. Mm -hmm. And so when we think about it first as a yoga teacher, right, there are many different, let's think about it as as a teacher or a student. There are many different environments in which we learn. So one of the environments, and the one we're mostly focused on here, is a drop in yoga class. But another environment we learn is in private classes. Another environment we learn is in a workshop where we go deeper on a subject matter. Another environment we learn is a series in which we go even more deeply in a subject matter. Another environment is a retreat. Another environment is a study group. Another environment is a 200-hour or a 300-hour training. So my point is, as a yoga teacher, you have many environments to teach the dimensions of yoga other than your 60-minute class. And you have to make that happen. Like if you want to teach the deeper philosophical, spiritual dimensions of the yoga practice, probably figure out environments that are more conducive to do that. And a 60-minute power flow at Gold's Gym is is probably not the best environment to try to unpack that. Sure. What about from an experiential standpoint in their body? Yeah, from an I mean, I think that that happens from good coordination of breath and movement and from shavasana. Yeah. It, and from having like a good practice where you focus and you connect on what's happening within and you get quiet for a little bit afterwards. And pace too, I think. Totally. That's, yeah. Totally. Part of it. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So the first time I really realized I felt an incredible amount of pressure to, to make a class hard. And I had to figure out a tactic to manage that. Um, I mean, I kind of felt it for a long time, but I, I have this very clear moment where one of the first travel workshop engagements that I had was um, teaching at Shakti Yoga with Lisa Black in Seattle. I think it was the I think it was Bellevue, but it was Seattle area. And I remember it was a Friday night, and I was there for all weekend. And it, it's a Bikram studio, like not a Bikram studio, sorry, a Baptiste studio, Baptiste, yeah. right? And I walked into that room as the teacher, and it was full, like it was a big room of maybe sixty or seventy people. It was hot, and everyone had their yoga mats laid out, and they also had like the Ashtanga rugs, the like Mysore mats on the yoga studio oh boy, on, yeah. on there. The right? expectation was you're gonna sweat, and and every literally everyone was like, you know, you have to like <laughs> prep those mats a little bit by pouring water on them. Yes, everyone was spraying down there. Oh mat. boy, oh boy, and and I was like, oh no. <laughs> Because this is, that wasn't like really necessarily my thing, you know. Like I can make people work intensely, but I'm was a am and were a little bit like, more methodical and technical, right? Yeah. And so what I started to realize, and what I feel like you and I would talk about a lot when I was writing for you at Yoga Journal, is properly contextualizing things right off the bat. So this is literally what I would say to them. It's literally what I said, and I've I've done this for years, whether it's a workshop or a public class. Okay, everybody, you are going to get to move as much as you can possibly want to move, I promise. Those of you that are looking to move quite a bit and have a strong physical practice, it's coming. But give me 10 minutes first. I wanna lay a few things out for you. So that's exactly what I said at the beginning of that workshop. I said, it's coming. It's coming, I promise. But everyone, come close. 
there's about 15 minutes of discussion I want to have to lay out some of the technical details that I think are really going to help make the hard work that you use a little bit more efficient, right? So what I had to understand in that situation was not to really fight against the cultural reality in that room, but to respect the cultural reality in that room that people wanted gross motor movement. But also to say, okay, I'll trade you. I'm gonna give you this, you're gonna get this, and and I will make class harder than I usually do. But give me 10, 15 minutes first to teach you four or five different really important details that is gonna help your hard work be better. And so I have done this forever, and it's kind of what I, I wanna propose to everyone listening out there is, if you are a more technical teacher and you are really sitting with this reality that you want to teach nuance and detail and specificity and you feel like that's difficult to do because everything's got to be flow, 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 just straight up at the beginning of class say, I want to look at something for five minutes. You guys, we do chaturanga so much. We're going to do a bunch of chaturangas, don't worry, but there's a detail in chaturanga I really want to teach you today. Let's come, let's look at this for five minutes, right? Because when you do that, then you've let people, you, you've managed people's expectations in such a way where they're going to, I don't want to say the benefit of the doubt, but they're, they're going to go with you. You're their teacher. You're teaching that class. They're going to go with you. And another thing about doing it at the beginning of class as you're not interrupting the continuity of the flow or the rhythm, right? I really understand this is something um, that I teach in my sequencing course a ton, which is you have to know you have to know where are the most efficient spots in a sequence to provide your students with greater detail mm-hmm. and or greater philosophy and or greater dharma insight, right? There's spots that that stuff works and there's spots that it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And so letting people know, hey, we're going to work strong and we're going to work on X, Y, and Z. But look, there's this super important detail that I I really want to communicate to you. Let's look at this for a minute. When you do that, especially at the beginning, you're not interrupting the flow. You're You're communicating that, you're communicating to the student that when you're talking about the, you know, the glenohumeral joint, don't worry, just listen to this. It's coming. The hard thing's coming. So you're getting their buy-in. And I think that the final thing that you're doing um, is you're, you're putting in the student's mind that relationship of, oh, there is technique here. I can hear it now because I'm not, because I'm not worried that I'm not going to move enough. And I'm also not moving so much that I can't hear that detail. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like when you go in to teach a group, whether it's a workshop situation where you don't necessarily know everyone or you're, when you used to teach weekly class, do you do anything to prepare yourself ahead of time to kind of like hold the space and not completely stress out? Because I would imagine that like if you're faced with a, group of people staring at you and like you said you're feeling that energy of them wanting things to be harder they're spraying down their mat they're putting their towels on like they're going to sweat all those things that like you might go into a stress response which might make you talk faster which might make you (laughs) move faster which might make you just kind of like get out of touch with what you're even trying to do or sequence or say two things come up for me number one I know that I'm a really good yoga teacher, but I also know that I am not the best yoga teacher for everyone that exists. So I know that I can work people hard and I can work people intensely and I like to do that and I'm good at doing that. And I'll share another few ways that we can think about how to do this while maintaining integrity. But I also know that sometimes things just aren't a fit and that doesn't necessarily say something about me or them. So I kind of figure to myself, like, if I can get everyone to the end of this class, like, I just trust that if I get everyone to the end of the class, 
at least 90% of the people in that room will have a really good experience. Mm. And maybe the 10% or the 1% or the 15% that don't, then it's, then it's not my fault, it's not their fault, it wasn't a good fit, and there are many other yoga teachers that they can move on to, mm-hmm. right? So I don't, I don't get swayed by the minority or the margins. I really don't. Because I, because I just know that there's no way for every class to equally appeal to all people across time and space. All the time, right. You can't. Right. And, so, and so if you do feel... Like, I got to make class a little bit harder. Okay, well, let me share a few more ways that we can do this. I shared one, but let's share a few more. And then if at the end of the day, you don't make it hard enough for some or it's too hard for others, let them go. It's okay. Like, nothing is ever a perfect fit in a big group. Mm -hmm. This is not. I think the, the, the other component to this, and I kind of, I kind of said it a moment ago is, I know that if I stay true to myself while also not making completely about myself. See, this is another thing that teachers have to sort out is it isn't completely about you either, teacher. It is also about the student. So if this, if in mass students want to move more intensely than teacher, I know how precious your information is about the head of the femur and triangle pose but maybe not in this community, maybe not today. Maybe you have to meet them with where they are, mm. right? So this is something where like, I, I've, ne- I've never felt like, oh, I'm a pure artist and I will do just what is, you know, the perfect for me. Mm. I'm gonna say, oh, well, I will do me, but I will do me in a way that has integrity to me, but let me communicate in a way that... Y- that you can hear. Mm -hmm. So let me teach a class that the majority of the people are going to enjoy in given the context of it's a level two, three flow class at a gym. Mm -hmm. Well, that better be hard. That literally better be hard because that's what it is. Yeah. Right. So, so for me, it's a little bit about figuring out, well, how can I do that in a way that's true to me but is also meeting the community where that community is. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I feel like, and again, I'll share another way or two to do this, um, but I feel like if I do that, then I I have met the students as well as I can meet the students. And the students that resonate with that will stay. And the students that don't resonate with that, they'll find they'll find something else. Before we get to the other couple couple tactical things, <clears throat> do you feel the same way about people leaving during Shavasana? Because I will say that taking yoga in a gym setting again, which is where I've been, and it's a great gym and it's great yoga for especially. I mean, it's as good as any studios. How I'll put it, similar to like the Bay Club sure. was. Fifty percent of the class sometimes will leave right as Shavasana yeah. starts. Do I like that? No, <laughs> but I think I think there's one thing you know pretty well about me is I don't really involve myself that much in other people's lives. Yeah, you're good about letting that go. So does what does it do? Do a lot of things trigger me and make me feel insecure? Yes. Do people leaving during class or Shavasana? both make me feel uh, insecure, like I haven't done enough, yes. Does it make me feel kind of bummed out for them? Yes. But I can get over that pretty quickly because I just realize like that person that left during Shavasana, that's not my life to live. I don't have that ownership. You know, and 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 if I if I try to hold on to that, it's so deeply flawed. Yeah. Um, and so, do I love it? No. Do, is it going to upset me for a long period of time? Probably not. Mm-hmm. But it can it can be a little bit. How do I say it the right way? It can it, be. Um, I would I, be disheartened. Th- personally. That's that's the word I'm looking for. It can be like. Um, 
I, I can't find the right demoralizing. Mm-hmm. It, it can it can be like it can be the last straw. Right. You know right. what I mean? It, as a yoga on. teacher, as a yoga teacher it can be the last straw. My guys. Right? Oh my god. And it's funny because as yoga teachers, we always sell shavasana. Like I had this question in my 300 hour training, right? Where someone was like, I just don't understand why so many of my yoga teachers say in shavasana, shavasana is the most important yoga pose right i'm like well it's not how are you gonna how like you can't quantify that that. or people are like shavasana is where all of the movements that you did becomes baked in and it's neurologically it's like that's totally not true it really isn't true but so why do we say this? Well, we say this because we're we're trying to sell it because mm-hmm. clearly shavasana is so important. Mm-hmm. I said at the beginning, mm-hmm. like that seems to be the place where we feel the experience of yoga. So don't get me wrong, right? Um, but it's all about the context. It's not shavasana in and of itself. It's about being still for a little while and and reflecting. But anyways, so like after, if you have worked people really hard, it feels good. The if not, and it, and it's like conducive to like when you work really hard and then you come to stillness. That dichotomy is just it's like very informative. I yes, would say. it's hugely valuable. I don't want to get too far on the anyway, tangent, but I anyway. do want to say one more thing. If if there's any doubters out there, they're like, no, shavasana is where everything blends in. Let me just let me let me take you to a moment here. Imagine all of the musicians of the world, after they did their lesson, did they lay down and get quiet for five minutes? No, they did not. Did they, during that lesson, still learn how to play that instrument? Yes, they did. Every athlete in the world, like every professional football player, did they lay down after practice? They did not lay down after practice. Did they still acquire those skill sets and those neuromuscular patterns from doing the thing? Yes, they did. So perhaps this is too much for that. Yeah, we're talking about two different things. We're talking about integrating the teaching versus being in the state of yoga. And Shavasana is more conducive to being in the state of yoga. And we talked about in the first place. And it is is demoralizing when people leave at any time. But yeah, yeah, when people leave during Shavasana, you're like, oh, this is the good part. I know, guys. Give yourself a break. Yes. Just for two or three or four minutes. Anyway. Yes. Okay. So let's talk about your other ideas for coping with this. This I don't think it's coping situation. so much. I think it's responding to the situation. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to give another anecdote. Years ago, not as long as uh, teaching at um, Shakti Yoga, um, but there was a yoga studio in San Francisco. This is going to uh, take many people, many listeners down memory lane called Urban Flow. And Urban Flow was run by the run and one and only Rusty Wells. And... You know, I had been teaching in San Francisco for a really long time, as had Rusty. And and we had known each other and appreciated each other for a long time, but we were really um, in different orbits as yoga teachers. Um, he was more of the intense, hard flow, bhakti and chanting driven flow person. And I was much more the like technical flow person. And... We had this meeting once, and we decided that I was going to come teach at Urban Flow. And I was excited to do it, right? And I knew that this was really going to be the first time I had been teaching vinyasa yoga for a long time and had a strong base. But I was coming, I was going to start teaching in an an environment that listened to music, that chanted, that sweated, and just was, worked really hard. And so I had to figure out how do I stay true to me, but also meet that community where it's at, Mm -hmm. right? And I had to figure out how I could teach a class where I wasn't going to chant, where I wasn't going to play music, where it wasn't going to be fast and the heaters weren't going to be turned on, and I could still relate to that community and its demands. So what I had to figure out was how do I do hard differently, and how do I communicate to that group to stay with me, to give me to give this to give this way a shot? 
Um, and I became, well, I was right off the bat, but I maintained and I became a really popular teacher there because I did hard differently. And at the beginning of every single class, I said literally the same thing. I said, look, my name's Jason, blah, blah, blah. I gave that kind of intro spiel. I said, um, I'm going to make sure that you have a really strong physical class. Like that's the nature of this community. Um, but I'm going to ask you to be really patient and I'm going to ask you to make things really difficult and challenging in a different way. What I want to do is I want to make this difficult with slowness. We're going to hold poses a lot for long periods of time. And not only that, we are going to hold transitions for really long periods of time. So instead of taking one exhalation to get from plank to chaturanga, we're going to take five breaths to get from plank to chaturanga. Instead of taking one inhalation to get from chaturanga to up dog, we're going to take five breaths to get from chaturanga to up dog. So if you're willing, um, we're going to we're going to go the complete opposite direction, and. People bought in. Right. Because I didn't here is kind of the, the the thing that I want to land on. Because from a sensory experience, they kind of got the same net outcome, which was they felt their body work. They focused on their body working. They got to that level of whole body sensory awareness and they went through the cycle of sweat and fatigue. So they got the same net outcome, but from a totally different approach. Instead of going fast, fast and short, we stayed long and deep. Mm -hmm. And when people understood, oh, when this class is over, I'm going to feel like I had a robust sensory experience. They bought in because they knew they were going to get to the same outcome, right? They, They didn't... Whether it was their ego or their desire or their needs or whatever it was, they knew that when class was over, they were going to be satiated. Well, also, like, I think it was just really smart to front load it so that they mentally bought in. So while they were doing what they were doing, they knew what was happening. They were mindful of it. They had a Totally. Yeah. And I think that's the, also going back to the Baptiste example, right? And then kind of the next thing that I'm going to say, one more tactic, I think you have to communicate it. You have to front load it. Yeah. And you have to meet people with where they are and not, like you can't as a community come in and be like, okay, I know people want X, but really Y is the answer. And even if you deep down think, oh my God, why is the answer? I know why is the answer. Well, that's fine. Then develop some diplomatic skills. Learn how to communicate that. Yeah. Right? So I think so much can be dealt with with communication. And I think a lot of times we're just not very good communicators. Yeah. Or, mean, or we don't feel... We learning don't... how to communicate, that's huge. I mean, I th- you kind of breezed over that, but I think that's a really big deal. And I'm really... I mean, I just think for people to just like take that in, how can I communicate this to whatever community I'm in front of in a way that's like palatable. Yeah. And, you know, not just easy to understand, but like sounds palatable. Sounds like something in, you know, you and I have learned firsthand and I think every parent comes up against this at some point, whether whether you're born with the most compliant child or not, you cannot at a certain point force another person to do what you want them to do just because you want to force them to do it. Yeah. It's like that with parenting. You kind of and people will enforce their will upon really small children. I don't actually think that's a good idea. I think that's like a very old school way of parenting. But at a certain point, it's you're going to come up against like everybody has their own free will. Yeah. And so you have to like you have to compromise, you have to communicate, and you have to figure out wh- how to get like their needs met while teaching what you think is most important and valuable. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, th- there's two more kind of tactics. Um, I was going to go with the other one first, but you just said uh, a word compromise, right? And tactics. And so, and we're talking about communication. So one of the things, like those yoga teachers out there that are still like, yeah, but I don't really want to teach a hard class. 
you don't have to. But then make sure that in the environment that you're teaching, you're doing a good job of communicating this is not a hard class and here's why it's valuable, right? It might even be at a gym. Let's say, let's say with say in the gym, it's like, then teach something called rest and recovery. Then teach something called um, yoga and mobility. Then teach something where you are really articulating the recovery cycle, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and where you're, where you're communicating to the students that you're providing them with value and understanding and technique that is going to facilitate their well-being, but it's not an exercise class, right? It, or it, it's a movement class, but it's not a group exercise class. It's not a hit class. It's not a workout class. Mm-hmm. So I think that, and I think in a gym environment, look, that's always, that's, that's rare that that is ever going to be as popular, but that's okay, right? It's kind of like on the menu, like there are items on a menu that are always going to be more popular than other items. That's okay. You still need to have a range of what's on the menu. So if, if as a yoga teacher, you're listening to this and you're like, yeah, but I just, I'm not at all interested in hard. Okay. You don't have to do that. Mm -hmm. And you're probably going to have to accept that if that is your choice, you're going to be working with a smaller population, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? So get, get like, get over popular. Mm -hmm. You're going to be working with a smaller population. It's going to be more intimate. Mm -hmm. It's going to be more personable, personal. Mm -hmm. It's going to be wonderful in the ways that a smaller, more intimate environment can be. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and in that situations also can be a huge relief to just, to, to pull yourself out, to just be like, yeah, this isn't for me. So what is for me? And I'll live with the reality. I'll happily right. celebrate the reality. Absolutely. That I'm going to be more uh, subtle and more personal. Right. Right. The one thing that I do want to kind of caution on this, though, is like yin is massively popular. Mm-hmm. Um, certain restorative practices are massively popular. So it's not like a hard class equals popular and a not hard class equals unpopular. Uh-huh. But in general, there's more public demand mm-hmm. for overtly hard things. Right, right, right. Yes. Um, the last thing that the last like tactic I want to share is pretty similar. Okay, which is something that which is something that I've done. Which is there's another way that you can make something more challenging or more intense or more hard. And I'm going to quiz you. You remember back in the glory days of Anyasara? Sure. You took some of those classes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Were they hard? Um, How were they hard? How were they hard? I mean, Anyasara to me was, like if I had to sum it up, was basically vinyasa yoga yep. infused with Iyengar techniques that were that were taught in a in a with different language. Yes, and and it was more like um, accessible language. Totally, but w- was there always were there always some poses in there that were hard poses? Yeah. What what were they? Arm balances and back bends. Yeah. Right. So one of the things that that community understood well, right, and for those of you that. We're not practicing in the 90s and the early 2000s. Anusara Yoga was, without a doubt, the most popular style of yoga going. Yeah. And John Friend's workshops were, without a doubt, globally the biggest by miles. Yeah. Okay? Um, and, well, this is not like a pro or a con for or against Anusara, but one of the things that I always noticed about them was those classes were never hard in terms of being extremely vigorous. They weren't like super fast, no, sweaty. No. no, not at all. But they were extremely challenging and that there was always some novel postures. Right. There were like peak poses. Peak poses. Always. Right? Yeah. And, and they were big peak poses. Yeah, they were. And you were made to feel 
like you were participating in them, whether you had an amazing back bend or not. You what you could do was celebrate it. Yeah. And so and so you were presented with a big challenge in every single one of those classes, not because it was hard and sweaty throughout, but because there was a a, a handful of postures that were like high-level hard postures. Mm-hmm. And you were always given an inroad, right? So it wasn't like there were people sitting on the bench. No. They were so, they were so good at getting everyone to feel like they could participate in a hard thing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so I think this is the other it's less obvious and it takes actually a technically much more skillful yoga teacher. But including including bigger, more challenging postures in every class and giving everyone an inroad to it mm-hmm. and making everyone feel good about trying it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because I think deep down within the human spirit, we actually need to be challenged. I think I think we get I think everything gets so existentially dull <laughs> when we are not being challenged. Mm-hmm. And I think we think we want a softer life. I don't actually think that's the truth. You and I might have some differences here. But, okay. But, well, fair but, enough. Fair but enough. Let me just say this. I will say, like, to to kind of bolster what you're saying. Um, yes, Anusara, there was always a peak pose. They they were really good at, I think, similar to the way you're really good at like breaking things down so that, like you said, um, if it was like stops along a train station, there was always a stop you could you could get off at and feel really good about where you what you were doing in your body. Um, and they because the students knew there would be a peak pose and there would be something challenging in the middle of class, they really took their time yes. to stop, to demonstrate, to show what was being asked of the students in a skillful, intelligent way. They took their time. It wasn't like rush through and like keep keep on sweating and do Viparita Dandasana with your legs straight. You know, it was like, okay, let's look at what this requires. Let's look at, you know, doing dolphin at the wall. Let's look at like what happens to the shoulders when we do this. What can we do to the shoulders differently What or with them differently? What can we do? You know, they talked about the heart a lot, yeah. right? So, so in other words, like there was because they knew what was coming, they could actually slow down yes. in the middle of class. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which I think is kind of an Iyengar originated. I think it's style, more of a, I think it's it? more of a Matias Rati. Okay. I mean, it's okay. more of like yoga works, Iyengar meets Ashtanga mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. evolution. But I think, I think in all fairness, I think John was early on in that development as well. Oh yeah. He, For sure. He's an incredible like asana practitioner. So. For all of his other flaws. Right. There are many. Right. Um, but so we we see like that's another map in a group movement environment. And like we know and our listeners know, we know and we know you know and you know yoga is much more than just yoga and physicality. But where the stressor often is, is around the intensity tone of a group class, right? So – just taking to heart, there's there's a big range of how to do this. There's one more quick thing, which is handstand. Everybody on the exhalation, transition forward into Virabhadrasana 3. You can stay here for a few breaths. Or those of you proficient in handstand who or who want to play with a couple of swing and hops, hands to the floor, a couple of swing and hops. There are certain really easy ways to all of a sudden make a class harder for a moment. Mm-hmm. Handstand transition, arm balance transition, forearm balance transition. Like those things, because they require, obviously they require skill, but because they are pretty output oriented, you can you can teach a class that's not fast and hard and sweaty and like amp it up, amp it up, amp it up. You can be methodical. You can be a little bit slow. You can make people hold poses for a long time and then give some options for a couple of more accessible, immediately hard poses. Mm-hmm. Like that's a very common thing to do, right? But it is a, it is, inc- it, 
like I said, it's a very easy way to all of a sudden make a class feel uh, more physically robust. Yeah. I think that's very smart. And I think this is just me being, I'm so like, I noticed in myself how persnickety I, I was when you said that, because I just have such a pet peeve with students who do that and like think that they're so much more proficient than they are and are just about to take everyone else out yeah, in the room. But, but that's just me being like, no, I'm I know. slightly old ladyish about this. Um, and there's just nothing that I think that there's nothing you can do about that. There's that nothing. Population. And that's again, like, so as a teacher, we should wrap this up soon. But I know. As a teacher, so then your choice starts to be, okay, am I more withholding of possibility Am I more constraining of possibility or am I going to kind of open up the parameters and, and kind of let things loose? And for me, over the years, I became a little bit, I opened the aperture. Yeah. I became a little bit less withholding because one, it made me less uptight. Mm-hmm. And then two, you're in a group class. I know. So for you, I know right, I have to deal I'm with like, other people. Exactly, like and it's you can't do a my work. Class. No, it's part of my own work to deal with other people. Like, also, if if this isn't like a sales point for online yoga, I don't know what is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because you know the real problem with not being like. Anyways, I was gonna make a joke that wasn't gonna go anywhere. Um, but my point on this is like, as a yoga student in a group, it's a group. So you have to deal with a group. And if you don't want to deal with a group, then glow all day. If you realize you can't people today, (laughs) don't people today. I have those days. Yep, 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 yep. All right. Okay, well, I think we covered a lot of ground. And I think, you know, we're going to talk soon about um, the beauty of slowing down and how to do that. And within that conversation, I think you and I can talk about what you brought up, which is that we always, like, at the end of the day, we all want to be challenged, which I agree with. But I I want to bring up, like, the idea that um, what could come with slowing down is creativity. It's a different kind of challenge. So we'll, we'll, we'll table that for the next conversation. Sounds good. Okay. All right. All right, everyone. You can go check out our show notes. I will put links to um, Jason's recent yoga teachers companion videos where he has a lot of great sequencing ideas where you can kind of think about this podcast in the context of those videos. So go to the show notes at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 282. And I will also put a link to Jason's sequencing course, which is on sale now for about another week. We're closing registration for that um, at the end of November. So if you have interest in that, you can go to our show notes or you can go to learn.jasonyoga.com slash sequencing. All right, everyone, until next week, enjoy your practice.